Welcome to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the Pulpnet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event podcast, Doug Ellis discusses the weird tales of Margaret Brundage. It's a survey of covers that Brundage illustrated for Weird Tales magazine. Doug is a pulp art collector and historian, and co-author of The Art of the Pulps, an Illustrated History. This event was recorded on Friday, August 20, 2021, at Pulpfest 2021 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, Margaret Brundage is probably the um, uh, leading, certainly the most famous uh, female cover artist for the Pulps uh, in, in the 1930s. Um, signing her risque covers is M. Period Brundage. At first, most people assumed she was a man. Um, it caused even more of an uh, uproar among the readers of Weird Tales when it was revealed by editor Farnsworth Wright that, in fact, it was a woman who was um, creating all of these uh, risque covers. While her covers caused quite a bit of um, uproar among the readers, what we'll examine today is, in the next uh, 50 or so minutes, looking at the 66 covers that she did, whether she was making up the scenes herself or whether um, these scenes of nude and scantily clad women were, in fact, illustrating what the uh, authors were writing. The interior artists for Weird Tales at this time um, were certainly illustrating particular stories and particular scenes that uh, Farnsworth Wright uh, asked them to illustrate. Um, I think that uh, Curtis Senf um, was even nicknamed uh, uh, or referred to by H.P. Uh, Lovecraft as the assassin because his uh, interior illustrations would often give away the end of the story. Um, and, and I've got one of those where uh, at the end the hero is decapitated with his head laying on a chair. And of course the illustration Senf did for that issue was the hero's head laying on a chair. Uh, so uh, uh, Lovecraft was not amused. Um, by the 30s, Wright was generally suggesting um, possible scenes for the interiors to his artists. I have a number of letters, I've seen a number of letters uh, by him to those artists uh, uh, telling him what exactly he wants to do, and in some cases saying, and whatever you do, don't do this scene because that's the scene the cover is going to be for. Uh, and so he also uh, told um, uh, Brundage uh, w w what to do. So Bar Margaret's first cover was for the September 1932 issue for the altar of Malak Taus by Gigi Pendarvis. This is a tale of devil worship in Baghdad, and the cover depicts the Englishwoman Avadni Willett and a local noble, the Prince Dana Ibn Zad, high priest of the Azidis. Uh, Malak Taus is their devil ruler, the angel peacock, and at his red altar is a glittering figure which is half man and half bird, shown there, um, in a fountain of fire. The prince brings Avadni there, clad only in a garment-like tissue for nefarious purposes, but uh, luckily for her, her husband uh, intervenes and thwarts him. Uh, Brunich's cover does illustrate the scene just as she's about to be sacrificed. Um, as a side note, uh, when this original painting was later restored by its owner, um, they decided to make it a little more risque, and they removed a little bit more of her gold tissue outfit. Brundage's next cover, October 32, is for The Heart of Siva by Seabury Quinn. Quinn was one of Weird Tales' regular authors, um, going back to its earliest issues pretty much, and he quickly realized that having a naked or a near-naked girl in his story really helped his chances of grabbing a cover. 
Sadly, Lovecraft never really learned that. <laughs> and he stuck um, instead with um, nude elder gods. Um, you know, he really could have started something, the whole t naked girl and tentacle movement, uh, but uh, he just really didn't uh, have that vision, I guess, and, uh, and it passed him by. Um, as an aside, just uh, real quickly, we could have used this, I guess, as the question. Um, uh, take a guess how many covers of uh, Weird Tales H.P. Lovecraft was on. Zero. You got it, zero. In any event, this particular cover, although he did get a cover from the Canadian edition for The Shadow Over Rinsman, um, this particular cover is one of Quinn's tales of his French detective Jules de Grandin versus a sinister Hindu cult. And Brundage's cover depicts a scene at the start of the story where a dead girl, uh, garbed as Brundage depicts her here, has been found. Um, however, um, the figure with the dagger was added by her to the cover, presumably to add a sense of danger. It, the scene itself doesn't have um, uh, the figure in it there. She's found later after she's been killed. After this cover, there's a four-month gap featuring J.L. and St. John covers for Klein's Buccaneers of Venus before Brunage returns with this one in March of 33 for another degraded story by Quinn, The Thing in the Fog. Um, here, Brundage eschews clothing entirely. Sally Lee had the misfortune to be turned into a werewolf in Smyrna. And while there in the story, there's a scene of her running with the wolves. Um, in the story, she's clad in a hairy cloak, uh, which obviously Brundage uh, decided to omit here. Later on in the story, Quinn does find a way to get her to disrobe, but um, it's just not in this scene. June 33 is Brunage's first cover for a Conan story, uh, Black Colossus. The princess, yes, Mela, seeks out an idol-like statue of Mitra for help against a desert sorcerer. The statue tells her, go out and place your kingdom in the hands of the first man she meets. Luckily for her, that turns out to be Conan, and she does. She appoints him her commander of her armies. For the cover, Brundage combines a couple of scenes in the story, uh, one where a clothed Yasmila is seeking Mitra's egg, um, combined with an earlier um, scene where she's laying naked on bare marble in her bedchamber, fearful of the images that the evil sorcerer is sending to her. Um, this particular um, issue was actually the first um, issue of Weird Tales I ever bought, uh, which I bought due to the cover. The July 33 issue takes us back to Seabury Quinn, Jules de Grandin, with the Hand of Glory, which is a tale of an Orientalist who is willing to sacrifice his own daughter in order to gain power. But hey, you know, everybody's got their faults. The cover faithfully depicts a dream sequence that de Grandin's friend and chronicler, Dr. Charles experiences. August of 33 depicts the chosen, the chosen of Vishnu by Quinn. This time, it's a relatively demure Brundage cover. Our heroine flees to America to escape becoming a bride of Vishnu, which is something you definitely want to avoid becoming, um, with the grand coming to her aid. And there's a kidnapping in the story, which is recounted after the fact. Uh, the kidnapper probably looks pretty much like uh, Brunage has depicted here, but Brunage pretty much relied on her own imagination for the girl who's not described in this particular scene. While it probably took place, is not described. 
Brundage's cover for the next issue, September 33, caused some comment, as one might guess, when it uh, first appeared. It's for another Conan story, The Slithering Shadow. The scene, as described by Howard, has Thales the Stygian sadistically whipping Conan's companion, Natala, who she had stripped nude. Um, Thales was a little upset that Conan had spurned her affections in favor of Natala, and so when that happens, I guess you whip your rival. The original of this painting still exists, but unfortunately the red has faded quite a bit. The October 33 issue is perhaps the most famous Weird Tales cover, known as the Batgirl issue usually. Um, for once, the, the woman here is not showing the usual amount of Brundage flesh, but um, this one also does not illustrate any particular story. However, a copy of this issue in, in pretty nice shape sold um, a few weeks ago, I guess at this point, for $19,000. Brundage's cover here for November 33 is the second one in a row that does not tie to the story. And as an aside, <clears throat> there was a rumor for a while, I think it was started by Al Sprague de Camp, uh, that Brundage used her daughters as the models for her women in the stories. Um, the only problem with that story, while it sounds really good, is that Brundage didn't have any daughters. <laughs> the December 33 cover is the third one in a row that doesn't depict the story. Um, appears they were probably doing a bit of an experiment here for these three issues, um, having covers that uh, didn't relate to stories, which a lot of pulps did. I mean, not every pulp uh, cover tied into a story on uh, pulps. Uh, but the experiment was very short-lived. It just ran for the three issues. So in January 34, we return to story ties. This time, another DeGrandin cover, The Red Knife of Hassan. Brundage's painting here depicts Margaret Dittmas, who in Seabury's Quinn, Quinn's words is birth nude. Um, that's a favorite phrase of his used a number of times in the DeGrandin stories. Um, and uh, she is this way uh, in the story, although she should be on a rug, not that uh, cold stone, which is probably hell on our knees. The masked figure is accurate down to the depiction of the dagger of the assassins on his breast. Nixon Dialis, another early favorite Weird Tales author. This is the February 34 issue featuring his tale, The Sapphire Goddess, which is a bit of a sword and sorcery tale. And Brundage's cover here depicts the first meeting between our hero and a princess of hell. Um, a bit surprisingly, he manages to avoid being seduced by her, even though she's in this outfit at the time. So he's uh, a man of iron will. Maybe uh, a man of questionable judgment, but of iron will. Next up, uh, veteran pulpster Hugh Cave um, snagged the cover of the March 34 issue. This one, The Black Gargoyle. In my book, it's not uh, one of the better covers by any means by Brundage. Uh, like many of Hugh stories, both in Weird Tales and in other pulps, this one takes place in Borneo. He had a lot of uh, uh, tales set there, uh, that's the Iron House stories and other stories and short stories and other pulps. Um, this one features a young Spanish wife, Josefina, and uh, a hideous dyad. A hideous dyak mask plays a uh, large role. 
The cover here depicts the scene where Josephina, who's asleep in a jungle cabin, wakes up screaming, seeing someone wearing this mask at her window. Um, I don't blame her for screaming. I think I'd scream if I woke up and saw that mask at my window. Another Weird Tales regular was E. Hoffman Price, a, a member of the Lovecraft Circle, and his story, Satan's Garden, grabbed the April 34 cover. This one is a tale of a cult danger in Bayong uh, among the hashish eaters. Um, my advice to you, don't go to Bayong among the hashish eaters as you can avoid it. There's some whipping in the story, but the cover actually doesn't illustrate a particular scene. It's a bit more abstract by Brundage combining various different elements of the story that um, were in it into, into this scene. Um, and actually, for a change, the girl is actually overdressed based on the way she's depicted in the story. This one, May 34 cover, is famous for being the first depiction of Conan on a pulp cover. Um, Brundage, you know, did great women. Her, her men, not so good. Um, here we've got Brundage um, depicting Conan and Belit, who is the queen of the Black Coast. And at one point in the story, Conan has a vision of a winged race who inhabited the ruined city that they've come across. But this illustration does not depict a particular scene in the story. Brundage has sort of combined elements. Uh, but back, by next time, though, I think uh, Conan should probably bring a bigger knife. Bring a bigger knife to a winged demon fight, I guess. I've always been fond of this cover. Uh, it's June 34 for Jack Williamson's Wizard's Isle. It's very colorful. Williamson was another Weird Tales regular. Um, common in pulps of the day, the story concerns an oriental menace who's bent on conquering the world, in this case through the use of his occult science. Again, Brundage's painting features elements of the story. It's got the elemental villain, the, I'm sorry, the oriental villain. It's got the hero who's been transformed to a into a monster. So the, the red creature is actually the hero. Um, and it's got the damsel in distress, but the scene itself doesn't occur in the story. The July 34 issue features a cover for the first installment of the novel, The Trail of the Cloven Hoof, by Arlton Eadie. Her cover here brings together our heroine in an evening frock of silvery gaze, as described in the story. Um, our hero in the terror of the moor, who's half man, half stag, and all evil. This particular scene exists only in Brundage's imagination. The August 34 cover is probably Brundage's best depiction of Conan. Uh, this one in a scene from The Devil in Iron. Uh, and the original painting for this one still exists. This time, Brundage is pretty true to the story of, in Howard's text, with Conan and his gal pal of the moment, Octavia, being menaced in it by a giant snake in a throne room. Um, although things look grim for the Sumerian here, it will not surprise you to learn that Conan does in fact emerge victorious. The September 34 issue the next month is for the first part of Howard's The People of the Black Circle, which is another Conan tale. This time Conan himself is not uh, depicted. Brundage's cover here shows Queen Yasmina being menaced by the master of the Black Sears of Yimshah. Uh, defying his desire to keep her as a slave, the, shiri, the seer is showing her his demonic inhuman form, which causes her to scream and faint. 
Um, in her defense, she did first try to attack him with a knife, uh, which she turned into a flower. So screaming and fainting was her second line of attack, I guess. But uh, she, she did try to knife him. C.L. Moore's uh, first tale of Gyro Luxury uh, grabbed the cover for the October 34 issue. This was actually Brundage's first cover for a story by a female author. Uh, and the painting depicts the Black God's Kiss of the story title, uh, which took place this way in the story. Uh, and if you've not read any of Moore's Gyro stories, they're great, they're classics in the field, and you can find them in several reprinted editions. Uh, in the dealer room, I saw at different tables. The November 34 issue um, is for E. Hoffman Price's second Brundage cover, sports Hoffman Price's second Brundage cover for Queen of the Lillen. Um, you could always improve your chances of getting a Brundage cover um, if you had uh, two beautiful babes in your story, not just one. And so uh, Price doubled down here and uh, managed to get right to tell Brundage, yeah, do this scene. This one's the story of Lilith, who's a gloriously lovely but evil woman. The sphere on the cover is a creation of Brundage's. It does not appear in the story, but the scene is otherwise uh, yeah, depicted. And since we've got two women fighting it out in November, let's keep going with that theme in December. Uh, this time with Howard's uh, Conan tale, A Witch Shall Be Born. And this time here, the uh, bad gal is Taramans. I'm sorry, the good girl here is Taramis. She's the deposed queen of Karun, and her sorcerer twin, Salome, um, who overthrew her, uh, they're battling it out here. Uh, Brundage does faithfully depict the red birthmark on Salome's chest, and the two, sister, the two sisters do fight at the end, um, but uh, Salome actually wields a knife rather than a whip, but I guess um, out of right felt the knife would be uh, menacing the girl too much, or whether you thought a whip was sexier, but she uh, switched to a whip rather than a knife. Black Bagila by Bassett Morgans, the cover story on January 35. This one takes place on an island near Singapore. Uh, Brightage's cover accurately depicts a scene in the tale, although she only depicts two black leopards rather than the dozen that are in the scene. Um, now maybe she didn't have a dime for the dozen. I, I don't know. Seabury Quinn returns to the cover for February 35 with The Web of Living Death. This one has a trio of uh, Brundage femmes. Um, this time, although Quint is most well known for the DeGrandin stories, he did do other stories from time to time. And in this particular story, his hero is not DeGrandin, but um, Thomas Carter, insurance investigator. Now, I never thought I'd read a Weird Tales uh, story in which the hero was an insurance investigator, but uh, I can cross that one off my bucket list. The cover scene is in the story, although in the story the women are completely nude and playing musical instruments. The Clutching Hands of Death by Harold Ward snared the March 35 cover. This is a tale of medical horror. And um, I really don't quite understand this one at all. It's a, it a very odd choice for um, Wright, I think, to, to pick this story to illustrate, given that the only women in it appear off stage, so there's actually no women in the story, and there's a Conan story in the issue. So why he didn't go with Conan, I don't know. The scene depicted by Brundage, though, is implied by the events of the story, but it doesn't actually take place in the story. 
The April 35 issue is a bit of an anomaly for the 1930s Brundage covers. Uh, as you can see, what is missing? There's no girl. Um, it's also a rare science fiction title for Weird Tales, which primarily featured fantasy on the covers, although it did run some science fiction inside. This one illustrates The Man Who Was Two Men by Arthur William Bernal. Uh, he only wrote a couple of pulp stories. And here Brundage's painting depicts the scene of teleportation gone wrong, as instead of being teleported, our protagonist is cloned. Another cover free of women adorns the May 35 issue. The Death Cry by Arthur B. Reeve was an entry in his long, long-running and popular Craig Kennedy series. Uh, Brundage's cover here is pretty flat, not one of her best by any means, uh, with the detective about to be brained with a rock. Uh, it's true to the story, but fortunately for him, he's only knocked out, he's not killed, and wakes up in time to solve the mystery by the end. Um, and again, I just don't know why Wright would have picked this story in this particular scene to illustrate when he could have gone with uh, the Conan story beyond the Black River, which is also inside. Women Return, although as you can see, more modestly clad than in the past, um, on the June 35 cover, Dorothy Quick's here with the horror in the studio. Um, and Brundage accurately shows the scene here where a distraught actress distraught actress stabs herself in the heart, um, although the large saint figure in the background is just for atmosphere. And it's a, a little reminiscent of a um, Polarski cover that occurred on Detective Fiction Weekly at around the same time. I think Polarski may have been a year or so earlier, but also has this um, saint figure in the background. Prolific pulp author Edmund Hamilton's The Avenger from Atlantis has the cover of the July 35 issue. Um, Brundage's cover here is a uh, effective montage of a few scenes from the story. Uh, depicts the destruction of Atlantis and uh, also the final reckoning at the end of the story between our hero and his faithless, faithless wife. Thousands of years later, they managed to uh, survive the uh, sinking of Atlantis and thanks to uh, Elixir of Life, uh, lived for thousands of years thereafter. Paul Ernst's Dr. Satan makes his debut in the August 35 issue. Brunage here depicts the cloaked and masked criminal. Her cover is a bit symbolic. Um, Dr. Satan is um, accurately depicted here in terms of his outfit and all the rest. But in, in, and there is a flame um, which plays a role in the story, but it's not a flame out of a skull, and this particular scene is not uh, in the story. And at last, we've had no women, we've had mostly clothed women, and finally we go back to what Brundage is doing best here, nude women. Um, this time, The Blue Women, by prolific pulp author John Scott Douglas, is the cover story for September 35. Um, I don't have a copy of it to show here. Uh, I meant to find one, but I did not do so. The cover was heavily censored by the Canadian, for the Canadian edition, and basically it's completely deforms her breasts. So if young kids in Canada happened to see this cover when it came out, they must have been horrified at what women really look like. Um, the story itself is an eerie mystery of a woman whose body glowed in the dark. Uh, Brundage took a few liberties here. While the new woman actually does swim in the lake, our hero never actually confronts her there, um, his loss. 
Edmund Hamlin's Nags' second frontage cover with the six sleepers on the October 35 issue. It's billed as a gripping tale of a super civilization in the far future, and they would not lie to you. Um, similar to the Buck Rogers stories, uh, or at least the initial Buck Rogers story, here six men from different ages go to sleep due to a strange gas, and they uh, wake up in the far future. Uh, Brundage's cover is relatively accurate in depicting a scene from the story, uh, although the woman should have a spear in her hands, and the wolf should have a man's head instead of a wolf's head. The November 35 cover for the Conan story, Shadows and Zambula, was heavily censored in Canada, as you can see here. <laughs> yeah, that just doesn't have the same impact. Um, here, you've got the dancing girl, Zabibi, who finds herself being menaced by four cobras that are being controlled by an evil uh, musician, uh, although there should be four shattered jars around them on the floor. Um, and she's forced to dance the dance of the cobras. Luckily for her, Conan kills the musician, which allows her to escape. Brundage's cover for December 35 issue for Howard's Hour of the Dragon is, I think, undoubtedly her weakest depiction of um, Conan. Um, in the novel, at this point, um, Conan's been captured by um, his foe, the ancient wizard, Zoltotan. He's been locked in the dungeon, and uh, a slave girl, Zenobia, gives him a key to unlock his chains and the door, and she also gives him a dagger. Uh, well, the dagger here is missing in the painting. I mean, maybe if it was there, he'd look a little more animated, a little more excited, not so defeated, but, uh, you know, I just don't see this guy getting out of jail and defeating the evil wizard, but he, he does. Well, Seabury Quinn had had quite a break from having the cover of Weird Tales, and he must have missed being on it. So he wrote a tale that was calculated to grab on the cover with the January 36 issue for DeGrandin's story, Arrival from the Grave. This one is just dripping with sex and nudity throughout it. It's one of her, one of Brundage's more erotic covers. And she depicts a lot of the stuff very faithfully here, including the hairstyles which are described by Quinn in the book and the sea green gown. The, the painting itself depicts, melds two scenes together. One is a, is a seduction in bed, uh, and then the other one is at the end, which is more like this image, except that at the end, the vampire woman who is beautiful in the earlier seduction scene uh, now reveals her uh, true hideous uh, self. Um, so she should be hideous here, but not so much. Veteran pulp author Forbes Parkhill gets his first cover on the February 36 issue for Coils of the Silver Serpent, which finds an anaconda loose in New York City. The cover here depicts the climactic scene. The villain has taught the anaconda to kill on command through a scent that he sprinkles on his victim's clothing. And our hero, realizing this, saves the day, saves his sweetheart, by dumping a vial of the scent on the villain, causing the anaconda to, to, to release her and uh, kill the villain instead. Um, I guess you could say that the snake had a crush on his master. Hey, come on, they're not all gems. Another prolific pulpster, Ronald Kazar, gets his first Weird Tales cover for the albino deaths on the March 36 issue. 
Once again, a whip makes its way to the cover, and um, the story features a lot of torture. Uh, torture is very prominent throughout it. Um, Betty is the plucky girl reporter. She's in a bit of a fix here, which Brundage accurately depicts, including the way she's dressed at the time. But uh, luckily for uh, plucky Betty, she does manage to escape the coils of our villain and uh, live to see another day. Jack Williamson's The Ruler of Fate snares the April 36 issues cover. This is a tale of a being who is secretly ruling the Earth from the moon. Um, it was a three-part serial, and interestingly enough, although this is the April issue, the scene that's depicted here really most closely resembles a scene from the June issue, although it's not terribly accurate uh, in, in terms of a scene. It's not um, as accurate as most of the uh, covers she painted where she was doing a scene. Second Dr. Satan cover here uh, for the story The Devil's Double. This graces the cover of the May 36 issue, and in this time, unlike the first Saint cover where there was no woman, it, it adds a woman here. Um, the illustration is pretty accurate, except that instead of that divan thing or couch, I'm not quite sure what that is behind her, she should be on an iron hospital bed. And while the scene is okay, it's really a shame that Wright didn't tell run into this case that she should paint the nude sword dancing scene taking place on the streets of New York City because that would have been a much better cover. This is Thor McCluskey's Loot of the Vampire, uh, featured in the cover of the June 36 issue. And as um, uh, this came out you know, a, a few years after Dracula, and as um, stated in the text of the story by uh, uh, Mr. McCluskey, um, the vampire is a count who doesn't drink blood, wine. He doesn't drink wine. Brundage's painting depicts a scene at the end of the installment of in this issue where he's hypnotizing our heroine. Um, I will confess that I didn't go to the start of the next installment to see if she breaks out of the hypnotism or whether she becomes launched for the vampire. Brundage's cover for Howard's Conan story, Red Nails, features four of her signature women on the cover this time for July 36. Um, this was the last Conan story that Howard wrote. And um, Conan's gal pal, Valeria, here, is about to be sacrificed. Now, in the story, a nude Valeria is being held by a man in her arms who, um, I mean, Brunage, Brunage didn't do men very well, but that is clearly not a man holding her arms. Um, and there's a woman holding her feet. Uh, while in the story, there are 13 other people standing around her in a ritualistic circle, but uh, Brendan took some artistic license here. Plus, you know, she wasn't being paid, I suspect, to paint 13 figures in one painting. Next issue is bi-monthly, August, September 36. Features Edmund Hamilton's The Door into Infinity. The door is depicted on the cover, and the tale involves a kidnapping by the Brotherhood of the Door of a young American wife in London. The, the door itself leads to another dimension inhabited by elder gods, you know, a la Lovecraft. And the scene on the cover isn't depicted in the story, but certainly fits the story um, and, and could have happened. Brunage's next cover is on the November 36 issue for uh, another DeGrandin story, Witch House. The cover does actually depict the scene near the end of the story. Um, I don't think you can read this from here, but the gravestone is for Christina Freiburch, who was killed in 1692 while on trial for being a witch. Um, and her familiar was the white kitten that's shown there.
Quinn's the Grand and appears again in Children of the Bat in the June, January 37 issue. Quinn's sprinkled new women liberally throughout this one. Um, the scene depicted here is at the start of the story where our heroes find the slain nude women hanging from the doorway, although the hooded figure isn't uh, present in the story. And Quinn was very graphic here. Brunage's, Brunage's cover is quite a bit tamer than the way Quinn depicted it. Um, this next issue doesn't feature a Brunage cover up, so I'm not going to show it, but she had a streak of, I think, about 33 straight issues where she did the cover. But um, Virgil Finley, who had been doing interiors for about a year at this point, got his first cover assignment with the February 37 issue, the next issue. And so from that point on, Finley and Margaret uh, pretty much split cover duties um, for a couple of years. Dorothy Quicks narrated her second Brundage cover with Strange Orchids, March 37 issue. Um, Brundage accurately depicts the scene here where our heroine discovers that the villain is growing orchids in the flesh of a living woman, which is draining her of life and color. Uh, apparently the villain had never heard of Miracle Grow, probably would have worked a little better for him. Jack Williamson's The Mark of the Monster is on the cover of May 37, depicting the monster as well as our heroine, the exotically named Valin Kirk. She's appropriately shown here in a scene from near the end of the book, but the monster here looks much more human than Williamson's description. Um, unfortunately, this one's sort of more like those shutter pulps, where at the end of the story you realize there's no supernatural element, it's all just uh, smoke and mirrors. So it's all explained logically at the end. The Carnal God by John R. Spear and Carlisle Schnitzer grabs the cover of the June 37 issue. And Brundage does depict the climactic scene here uh, pretty accurately as the metal statue comes to life and is about to take the virtue of our young heroine. Uh, fortunately for her, her beloved, um, aided by a scientist, uh, comes to her aid and uh, saves her from a fate worse than death. Gigi Pandarvis gets her second Brundage cover with The Thing of Darkness in the August 37 issue. Brundage's painting here again is accurate. Edith Kinlock's smoke gray dinner gown is described as is The Thing of Darkness. Um, and unlike several of the tales in her tales, this one does not have a happy ending at all. Another DeGranin story snares the cover of September 37 issue, Satan's Palimpsest. Um, as an aside, this cover was acquired um, shortly after the issue was published by um, author Seabury Quinn and was owned by his family for many decades. And uh, about 50 years or so, I think, after this issue came out, uh, my friend Bob Weinberg got a phone call from a guy who claimed to be Seabury Quinn. Uh, and, uh, Bob told me it can't be Seabury Quinn. Seabury Quinn's dead. At which point, uh, the, the guy who was calling Bob said, "I'm just pulling your leg, but I am Quinn's son." Uh, and uh, he was calling Bob to see if uh, Bob wanted to buy this cover from him. Um, and Bob, being no idiot, said yes. Uh, once again, Seabury was smart enough to have a lot of, to have a lovely female disrobe at the end of the story, which is captured here by Brundage although the images in that uh, box sort of thing don't match the images uh, that Quint describes. Uh, Well-known author David H. Keller gets his first Brunage cover on the October 37 issue with Tiger Cat. 
For once, the woman, Donna Marchese, is whipping men, other than women being whipped. Um, her painting, Brundage's painting, is accurate, but these are just a few of the unfortunate men that uh, Miss Marchese, also known as the Tiger Cat, has locked in her dungeon. Um, and here, the scene depicts, uh, with the aid of our hero, uh, the men have managed to escape and turn the tables on the Tiger Cat. Uh, her nine lives quickly run out. Living Buddhists by Seabury Quinn is the cover of the November 37 issue. It's another of the Grandin tales and demonstrates that you need to watch out for those dire lamas from devil-ridden Asia. Brennage's cover is pretty symbolic. Um, Sylvia Dearborn is pretty much dressed this way, and she actually got dressed that way with the assistance of DeGrandin and Charbridge, who I'm sure didn't look much while they were helping her dress. The sinister figure there is not though there in person in the story, but it's the spirit who's trying to force his way into her body and take her over. The, the, the feathers are an uh, artistic adornment by Brundage, not in the story. Nickton Dialis, The Sea Witch, is the cover tale for December 37. Um, Helda Hellstrom arrives out of the sea naked. Nope, oh, you missed it. That's the devil's mark. Hang on here. Why did I take this out of order? March. I'm sorry. That's November. That's January. Stop. No, that's. missing an um, image here for Dialysis um, Sea Witch. Maybe it'll show up later on. Anyway, this is the January 38 issue um, for The Witch's Mark by Dorothy Quick. Um, the cover is similar to uh, other Brundage's in many respects. Uh, uh, actually, similar to the one for the Sea Witch, which uh, um, hopefully we'll see in a few moments. Um, the woman here is described in the magazine as he saw me the loveliness that was hers and knew her for a witch. So Brundage's cover here is a bit more symbolic. Uh, the lovely Cecily is revealed um, to be the hideous ancient witch she really is in the background. Jules de Grandin returns in Seabury Quinn's tale of devil worship and the Black Mass in Sense of Abomination in the March 38 issue, uh, which is completely loaded with nudity and sex once again. Brundage takes some artistic license. As described by Quinn, uh, she should be laying on top of an altar right now, and the incense should be pouring out from a bronze device which is being swung by a young um, male acolyte. Quinn's Goddard Demerung is the cover story from May 38. This one doesn't involve DeGrandin. Um, instead, it's a man from present-day New York City who's vaulted into the future due to an accident where he meets a lovely woman known as the Holiness. Here, Brundage depicts the mask that the Holiness sometimes wears, as well as the scene of sacrifice. Um, the ending of this one is quite grim. It doesn't really end well for anybody. June 38 issue finds the Grand End back with Suicide Chapel. Brundage's painting depicts a scene at the end of the story where the Grand End and Charbridge save a young woman from a fate worse than death. 
this time at the hands of a guerrilla and its master. Her cover for August 38 is a bit reminiscent of some of the um, earlier covers she had with uh, a girl and a wolf. Um, this one's for Arlton Edie's The Wolf Girl of Jocelyn. Not surprisingly, given the title of the story, the girl is able to transform herself into a wolf, but whereas here she's running with the pack, in the story she transforms herself uh, in, into a wolf to um, save the heroes and uh, uh, attacks the wolves to, to drive them off and save their lives. September 38 issue features Seabury Quinn's As Twas Told to Me, which is a tale of witchcraft at the time of the Puritans. Uh, Brunden Jackley depicts the sad end of a woman here who is wrongly accused of witchcraft. Uh, while her attire isn't described, and the cover is demure by Brundage standards, uh, it probably is not an accurate depiction of what people were wearing in Puritan New England at the time. With the sale of... Alright, this one does not belong. This is a Finley cover. Here we go. With the sale of Weird Tales to a New York publisher, uh, Brundage's covers became a lot fewer. Uh, her pastels, um, which was her preferred medium, really didn't lend themselves well to being shipped. Um, and uh, so from this point on, um, she would only do eight more covers for the magazine. Um, after a hiatus of nearly two years, uh, from September 38, she returned with this cover for the July 1940 issue. Um, and her style from here on out was also much more subdued. It was a different publisher, it was a different um, editor, and they were pitching the magazine a bit differently. Uh, this particular story covers for uh, An Adventure of the Professional Corpse, The Artificial Honeymoon, by H. Bedford Jones. Uh, the story concerns a guy, James Bronson, who is able to simulate being dead due to an elixir that he had taken previously, and so he hires himself out whenever anybody needs a corpse. Um, here he's been hired because a girl needs to become a widow quickly in order to escape a guardianship. So the deal is he marries her, and then two hours later he dies. Um, and now that she's a widow, she's free of the guardianship and can uh, arrange her own affairs. Um, and while he plays his role well, dying on cue, uh, this particular scene actually doesn't ever uh, take place in the story. The November 1940 issue features Quinn's The Last Waltz. Um, although nobody else can see him except the heroine, um, her former sweetheart comes back uh, as a ghost to waltz with her at her wedding, which is what's shown here. Um, unfortunately, while the ghost may have had the best of intentions on coming back to waltz with her, um, she immediately starts screaming to everybody that she's seeing the ghost of her dead lover and they think she's crazy and they lock her up. Brundage returns a bit to her old form here with the cover for uh, March 41 and Malcolm Jameson's The Man Who Loved Planks. Now, these aren't the fish planks that you can get at Long John Silver's. These are like planks of wood. Um, and the scene she paints here is symbolic with um, Enoch Warren being a man who's able to reassemble trees from old lumber. So instead of disassembling trees, he reassembles trees. And that then reanimates the wood nymphs that lived in the trees. August Derleth gets his only Brundage cover on September 41 for Beyond the Threshold. It's a tale of ancient... Well, except that this is a dit. 
All right, missed another one. Um, this is the issue after that, mainly what Melman's Coven, which snares the cover for July of 42. Um, this one isn't quite uh, as symbolic as uh, the previous one, but it could represent a scene in the story with the great horned ones. Uh, Brundage had to create the outfit for the woman because the woman is not described um, at all by Wellman, uh, although Wellman does describe the um, horned one pretty well. John Cotter's Wife by P. Schuyler Miller was the cover story on May 43. Um, and for what I think is the first time, um, Brundage also did interiors for um, the story. I don't know if, uh, at this point, they were only giving her one cover a year to do. Uh, maybe they figured they'd slip her a few extra bucks by having her do the interior also. Uh, but uh, it certainly wasn't making up for the loss of, you know, six or eight or ten covers a year. Uh, this particular cover, though, uh, does illustrate a scene in the book uh, complete with the white ferret that the woman is holding there. This is um, Robert Block's uh, only uh, Brundage cover, which appeared on the May 44 issue for Iron Mask. Uh, Brundage, again, did the interior looks for this. And all of the elements in this uh, painting are in the story. There's these papers that are valuable papers for the war effort, there's the iron casket they're stored in, the hero, the heroine, the man in the iron mask, but Brunnage just sort of all combines these into one image that, you know, not uh, showing the story otherwise. Her long run came, in Weird Tales came to an end with this one, uh, the January 45 issue for Edmund Hamilton's Priestess of the Labyrinth. Uh, once again, she provides the interior art for the story as well. The tale took place on Crete during World War II. Um, our hero, um, uh, who lands on Crete, um, is being followed and pursued by uh, Nazis. Um, and he gets down into the catacombs and he follows the labyrinth. And both he and the Nazis are transported back to ancient Crete. Um, and there they meet the priestess and the minotaurs, um, who are depicted here as by Brundage. Um, not surprisingly, given it's World War II, it turns out that Minotaurs don't like Nazis. In all, uh, Margaret Brundage um, provided 66 covers to uh, Weird Tales. Um, of those covers, about 20 of them are still known to e exist. Um, and uh, those paintings are among the most expensive uh, pulp paintings uh, you, you can buy when you can find them. Um, she was paid for most of her career at Weird Tales, $90 a cover, um, and the most I know that a um, cover is sold for is $75,000. Um, had the magazine not moved from Chicago to uh, New York, um, it's undoubtedly, you know, she would have done more covers than she, than she did. It's just that once it moved uh, with the new editorship, and particularly with her medium, um, uh, she didn't do many covers after that. Um, and while the magazine ran for 279 issues uh, in its initial run, um, she'll always be remembered as um, the, the primary cover artist uh, for Weird Tales. That, ah, all right, they came up. I don't know why they're out of order. I'll quick go back. There should be two more here. So this is the Durlith um, uh, cover for September 41 for Beyond the Threshold. It's a tale of ancient evil, uh, which does not illustrate any particular scene, just gives a sense of the story. And if they get lucky, can we get lucky? No. All right, well, you're going to have to hunt down the last frontage cover on your own, I'm afraid. That's it. That's all I got.
Uh, no, she mostly used magazine images that she found. Yes, she did 66, although technically I guess you could say there's 67 because in the 50s they reprinted one of them. Um, but I didn't bother showing it because it's not for the store, you know, just to print the cover. Was the interior art similar to the, uh, the, the covers and the style? Yeah, I mean, she only did a few interiors for Weird Tales. She did some interiors also for um, Golden Fleece, and then she did some interiors for a few other things here and there. Her style was pretty similar. Um, uh, to her cover style, uh, but she really did not do a lot of interior illustrations for the pulps. Uh, what other professional art did she do uh, in her career? Or did she... Um, she did. She did a lot of advertising art earlier in her career before she um, uh, moved to Weird Tales. Um, uh, actually, before she moved to Weird Tales, um, her first job for uh, Farnsworth Wright um, and um, the publishers of Weird Tales was they, they were publishing the sister, Weird Tales history magazine, Oriental Stories and Magic Carpet. So Wright first hired her for that, liked her work on that, hired her for Weird Tales. Um, but otherwise, her magazine work uh, was primarily limited to the Chicago market. So uh, Weird Tales was based there for a long time. She worked for them. Uh, Sun Publications, which published Golden Fleece, was based out of Chicago. She worked for them. Um, there's a uh, Sun Publications also published uh, a um, sort of a girly magazine called Ten Storybook. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It um, ran fiction and it ran uh, nude or topless uh, uh, artists, model figures um, uh, in there as well. And they published. Uh, some side magazines as well, one of which was Girl Parade, which was almost all nude photos of women for the enjoyment of art students only. It was no, no prurient interest, of course. This was only marketed to art student markets. Um, and um, in one of those, she has six or maybe eight, I think, interiors, um, black and whites, um, but otherwise not a lot. Um, well, the editor for her most, most of her run through Chicago was Farnsworth Wright. So that's basically the first 58 covers she did. And then when Dorothy McElwright became editor, you know, it was these, um, uh, oh, this was one of them. So these eight covers are when she had a female editor, but they were also slanting the magazine a little differently. Um, back then. One story. This is really the only one that sort of got sort of the classic Brundage feel with the, the wood nymphs there um, of, of her later covers. Um, that's the first time. So, so those are her last date uh, with Dorothy Malcolm's and Michael Wright as the editor. Um, she was married um, in the, uh, oh, she was born in Chicago. Um, uh, went to art school, uh, actually in high school she, I think it was her, no, art school, um, I believe she was um, classmates with uh, Walt Disney, and she used to like to say apparently that uh, she graduated, but he didn't, and um, she was uh, also, I think, the editor of the um, art school's, uh, uh, whatever, little magazine or newsletter they did, 
Um, and so she got to either accept or reject his work, which she was pleased about, I guess, later in life. Um, but she married uh, a, a, a guy whose nickname was Slim um, uh, uh, and took his last name, Brundage. Um, in the late 20s, they had one son. He was a bit of a uh, ne'er-do-well. Um, he was involved in the, the, the socialist movement uh, a bit, and they got divorced, I think, in 39 or so. Um, and then she, she lived in Chicago the rest of her life. Unfortunately, um, once Weird Tales moved, uh, her income really dried up quite a bit, so she was not well off at all the last um, 40 years of her life. Um, she did do uh, a number of um, street market uh, uh, fairs uh, in Chicago in the 60s and 70s where she would sell some paintings, but not, not these paintings. You know, she, would, she was still painting. She would um, uh, sell some of her work there. Um, she had some bad experience with fans who came to her house and uh, basically talked their way in and stole some of her stuff. So she was um, down on fans for a long time. Um, she sort of got over that uh, later in the 70s when she got to meet some nicer fans. But um, unfortunately, uh, given um, the great work she did, uh, uh, she really was not recognized uh, as much as she should have been in her lifetime. Last one. Yeah. <laughs> that's a. Yeah, that, that's actually a good point. That yeah, I mean, Lovecraft um, probably would not have been pleased uh, to have gotten a Brundage cover, but I would have been pleased to have seen one. All right. Thank you, Doug. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast. Brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2021.